1: Welcome
0: to another episode of Mormon Discussion. I am your host, Bill Real. I'm grateful to have you with us today. You can reach me by email at realmormon at gmail.com. That's R-E-E-L-M-O-R-M-O-N at gmail.com. You can find this podcast on iTunes, but you're only going to find the most recent 20 or so episodes. So please check out the podcast at its host site, mormondiscussion.podbean.com. That's Mormon Discussion, all one word, dot n.com You can also find us on Facebook under the name Mormon Discussion, all one word. Now, to what you've been waiting to hear. Brother Richard Bushman, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? Very well, thanks. Glad to have you on. All my listeners are going to know who uh, who you are, so I don't know that a an introduction is in place, but I, I would certainly love for you to maybe just share a few thoughts with us on some background from you, uh, if you don't mind.
2: Well, uh, I was... Um... Born in Salt Lake, but I was part of the Mormon diaspora during the Great Depression when my dad had trouble getting enough work in Salt Lake. He was a fashion artist. So we uh, moved to Portland where he worked for Meyer and Frank, a big department store there that later bought CCMI. Um, And so I just grew up uh, in the church at a time when um, it was still a very small operation in Oregon. The, The one stake um based in Portland reached uh hundred to two hundred miles in either direction, north uh south and uh east. So uh we sort of felt like pioneers. We went to church and and little halls and so on. So um I was sort of brought up um in uh when the church seemed weak and small rather than strong and um went to high school there, um Got interested uh, because of um, an interviewer came to our high school and uh, Eastern colleges, so I applied to Harvard and was admitted and went to school there. And um, that's, I guess, when you say I had my faith crisis. My faith crisis had not nothing to do with the church uh, as a particular denomination, but with the existence of God, which was a uh, big question mark uh, in... Um, undergraduate life in those days, uh, but I came through it, went on a mission to New England and got a degree in the history of American civilization. Um, first job was at BYU, stayed there for six years, and then was offered a position at Boston University where uh, moved with our little family. We had the, uh, uh, the four children, five children by then, and uh, so uh, then uh, moved to Delaware and then back to Columbia. So we've sort of been um, sort of academic gypsies moving from job to job. But finally, we've settled in New York. Uh, all during this time, I was writing for the American history. That's how most historians think of me. But also, as lots of, how did I say, scholars interested simultaneously in church things. So when Leonard Erickson asked me to write a book about Joseph Smith for his uh, new uh, church history series, I agreed. And that got me back into the business uh, more seriously. So um, later I expanded that uh, brief early history of Joseph into a full-length biography, which uh, people know as Rough Stone Rolling. So I've kind of lived this double life, a historian of early America. I still do early American work, uh, but also as a uh, Latter-day Saint historian.
0: Wonderful. Glad to hear all of that. And it is, you know, for my listeners, it is, I think, a comfort to them to know that in some way you you had a faith crisis as well uh as a young man. And I guess I want to start off, I want to use as the backdrop of our discussion today a paper that you wrote uh or a talk you gave in 2008, which was Joseph Smith and his critics, because I think you described the faith crisis journey or process beautifully. And I want to start off by reading the first paragraph from this. <clears throat> it says increasingly teachers and church leaders at all levels are approached by latter-day saints who have lost confidence in Joseph Smith in the basic miraculous events of church history. They doubt the first vision, the Book of Mormon, many of Joseph's revelations, and much besides. They fall into doubt after going into the internet, finding shocking information about Joseph Smith based on documents and facts they had never heard before. A surprising number had not known about Joseph Smith's plural wives. They are set back by differences in the various accounts of the first vision they find that Egyptologists do not translate the Abraham manuscripts the way Joseph Smith did, making it appear that the book of Abraham was a fabrication. When they come across this information in a critical book or read it on one of the innumerable critical internet sites, they feel as if they've been introduced to a Joseph Smith in church history they had never known before. They undergo an experience like viewing the famous picture of a beautiful woman who in the blink of an eye turns into an old hag. Everything changes. What are they to believe? The reason I start off reading that you describe my experience perfectly. When I encountered my faith crisis, this is exactly the way I felt. This is the, the reasons I ran into problems. And and so how did you get such a good feel for for how many, how can I say it this way? How did you get such a good feel for the way in which we're, a lot of us are struggling with doubts and with a faith crisis?
2: Well, I was uh, kind of in the middle of that, uh, almost from the beginning when the Internet became accessible to so, so many people. Uh, because I had uh, uh, written Rockstone rolling, which seemed to bring uh, a number of these issues out into the open, people thought of me as uh, someone to turn to when they got in the middle of this. So I was received innumerable uh, 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 emails, especially from people. And sometimes um, friends would say, will you please talk to my brother or my cousin or someone. Uh, I got a lot of what I said there from a long conversation I had with a couple in Berlin. He was the bishop, she'd been the leave side president, but uh, they had just gone through this uh, struggle. And I actually checked that article with um, this brother, uh, and he gets quoted later on in the piece uh, to make sure I was being uh, authentic. So it, the, the stories were so similar. I mean, it was just a pattern occurred over and over again that it really wasn't too hard in the long run to uh, sort of put this all together and sum it up as I did in that piece.
0: And that's good. It it really is described so well. And I, wanna, I don't want to get into reading every single part of this, but there's a couple parts I want to read because I think you hit the nail right on the head. The next part you go into, which is the reaction that people who enter a faith crisis get from those around them, You say often church leaders, parents, and friends do not understand the force of this alternate view. Not knowing how to respond, they react defensively. They are inclined to dismiss all the evidence as anti-Mormon or of the devil. Stop reading these things if they upset you so much, the inquirer is told. Or go back to the familiar formula of scriptures, prayer, and church attendance. So I want to start off with my with a question, which is, how can we as a church, or even as individuals, how can we better address how family or leaders react to those in crisis?
2: Well, it's a matter of a widespread education uh, and uh experience. I think there are lots of people now who are thinking this through um, at all levels of the church. Um, they're forced to by the people come to them, and uh, I think basically the need is to take these people seriously. You may run into a huge blow. You know, it's like learning you have cancer or that your mother died. It's something very real in your life, and uh, it should never be belittled um, and the fact is there are lots of real problems they they have to be confronted so as we sort of educate ourselves or are educated by people who are having troubles, I think you know, we're going to be become more uh, sympathetic uh, there's a very strong pastoral uh, an urge in in the church, widespread, and uh, people are going to really want to help. And when they begin to see what the picture really is, I think uh, we'll get better and better at doing it.
0: That's a good point. I know personally that there are some wards and stakes that are wrapping their arms around the idea of helping leadership in members to be more supportive, to be more helpful, to train them to better understand the process of a faith crisis. But I also know of some words and stakes that won't touch the idea with uh, with a 10-foot pole. They're, they're afraid that by even talking about faith crisis, that it's going to bring a, a faith crisis unto others. And I know in the church, behind the scenes, as we're talking about how to help people struggling with faith, there's this idea of inoculation. And some people fear that by using uh, this information to inoculate members that in reality will cause more trouble than we help. But Where do you come down on that? Well,
2: uh, it is true that in the process of teaching people about uh, our history, uh, you're going to shock some of them. And I think there are people who read Ruston Rowling who um, were aghast at what they learned, especially about polygamy. But we just don't have a choice. We just have to tell the story. And I don't think it's a matter of saying uh, we've got these problems and here's how you deal with them. It's a matter more of integrating all the information into a single story. So it just becomes part of what you learn. Everybody learns that there are many versions of the first vision. Everybody learns that the book of Abraham uh, translation doesn't conform to what's on the text. Uh, These things just have to be told. I would say it's, it's like telling your kids about sex, if you're all uptight about it, they're going to be uptight about it. But if you take it as just part of life and they're a little more casual, uh, they will take it the same way and it won't won't upset them nearly as much.
0: So there are people in the church who once knew. I I remember in my testimonies after I joined the church, I was very prone to get up and say, I know with every fiber of my being that, that this is true and that is true. And I would see everything as miraculous. And, uh, and maybe put more behind what God was doing with me or with the people around me than what was actually going on. For those who, who once knew and now they only believe, a lot of them get flack or feel resistance from members around them and they're almost seen as less than. And, and so my question is, what would you say to those who, as they see someone in a faith crisis, their immediate reaction is to see them as is being less than faithful?
2: Yeah, that's really a terrific question. It's like someone who's been divorced. Uh, they're great one day and then they're divorced and think, oh, you've got problems. And we we just subconsciously begin to uh, treat them differently. Uh, I, I'm i hearing more and more talk, of course it's in the circles where I live and it's not in the wider church, that uh, really doubt is part of faith and that I have a son who has trouble believing, but he lives his life in a good Mormon way, says prayers, serves in the church, and I say he exercises faith, and I find that very admirable that he just believes there's something good there and he's going to hold on and uh, that things will work out for him as as time goes by. So I I think it's just a matter of widening the spectrum. Part of it will be from talks and conference and sort of authoritative statements saying, look, don't give up if you have, a, have doubts. Um, it's part of ordinary life. Um, but part of it will just be from experience. It will be people like you bearing your testimony. And uh, my guess is, I'm just really guessing here now, is that you may have got some negative responses at first, but as it goes along and you prove yourself faithful and willing to do your part in the church, um People become accustomed to it and they say, Well, there it is. You may have doubts, but he's a good guy.
0: In in trying to understand how how faith develops, the missionaries go out and they teach Moroni chapter ten. And and while a lot of people get answers that way, some people get answers Alma thirty two, which talks about the seed and planting a little seed here and a little seed there and things growing little by little. And then Doctrine and Covenants 46 talks about how it is given unto some to have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and others to have faith to believe in their words that they might have eternal life also. So we see this process that faith develops in different ways. Yet in the church we kind of value people who have knowledge over people who hope or believe. And I know Elder Holland in his last conference talk addressed that belief was okay, that there was nothing wrong with believing But even in that talk, there's this kind of idea that you know, if you believe right now, that's okay, but at some point it needs to lead to knowledge, and some members of the church never get there. Do you have any thoughts on those who live their whole lives just believing or just hoping? Yeah. Well,
2: I I love those people, and I think that's actually the state of of human life, uh, that we can't be certain about the very most important things in our lives so and i I think your your um comparison of alma thirty two versus the definite belief um, testimony is right on target i mean i I think Joseph Smith's first vision versus alma thirty two Joseph Smith says you can question question question, but then you have a definitive experience that makes it certain, and that's 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 the that's it you now have it. And the 32 is, is always uh, always growing. I worry a little bit about uh, putting too much stress on Rona 10 and 4 or the first mission because it just doesn't work that way. And I've known some very, very good people who struggled and struggled, struggled growing up in the church to get a powerful confirmation, and it never came. And they say, well, I cannot be a Mormon. It does not work for me. So they, they drop out. I think that's a a bad mistake. So there we have Alma 32 is the way and Alma 32 never ends in complete knowledge. You know the seed is good, so you keep cultivating it, but you don't know the the whole thing is true. There's never complete certainty about everything. It's just a step-by-step knowledge. So I think that needs to be taught over and over again in the Church in order to cultivate different kinds of souls who Learn the gospel differently.
0: Yeah, it seems like you're you're speaking to this idea that that as you say, we need to talk about it over and over again. That that just one talk here or one talk there isn't going to fix it. That we've got to just constantly stay on this and address it. And and in your 2008 address, you gave some suggestions on how we can better deal with this difficult information that people come in contact with. And and the first step you list, you say we begin by agreeing that criticisms of Joseph Smith. Should not be dismissed as foolish or purely evil, and I find that happens a lot. If ever somebody says, "I'm really struggling with this issue that I found on the internet," whatever that issue is, the immediate response they get is, "Oh, that's anti-Mormon propaganda, or that's a lie." Um, tell me why that's you know. Can you maybe share with us why that's not helpful?
2: Well, um, I think that when people um, people seek for help and receive that. Um, the reaction is not to say, well, I guess you're right. I've got to get out of these troubled waters. It's to say you don't understand. You refuse to think to so or face up to the problem. So that's why one of the common accusations against the church, you have to turn off your mind. You cannot be candid. I had a guy in one of my seminars on Mormon culture, a very faithful person, and he said uh, he'd always worried about uh, studying church history for fear you would run onto things that he'd have to suppress or couldn't be candid about. So long as you have a feeling that if you really looked at everything, if you turned over every rock, um, you might be shocked with what you found, you don't have a secure testimony until you can look at everything squarely you really are on shaky ground, so I think we've just got to get rid of that idea that some questions are out of bounds, or we will be building on the sand.
0: Right. We need to value all truth, and, and if searching through history uncovers some muddy fact that we've got to put in better context, then at least we're still seeking after truth, and obviously, as Elder Holland said, we should lead with faith, which which kind of goes into your second uh, piece of advice, which is to avoid dogmatic answers. And I love the sentence you use here. You say, rather than destroy the critics, we want to loosen their grip. Uh, What did you mean by that?
2: Well, I think one of the problems is that you get dogmatism versus dogmatism, that um, so many of the people who have their faith shaken knew for sure they had certain testimony and then they lose their testimony and then they know for sure that the church is false and they're just as dogmatic after the changes as before. And neither one of them is sound or based on a real search for understanding. These things are just immensely complicated and there's no way that through thinking these through and looking at everything you can arrive at certain conclusions. That's easy for me as a scholar to say because that's the nature of historical knowledge. Every historian knows that the biggest questions are all unanswerable or you have very um, restricted answers to most of the big questions. So I think the better way to say is there is a way of looking at things that's favorable to the church. You don't have to interpret everything in a negative way. So... uh, Uh, All I aim when I talk to people is to keep the conversation open. Don't close your mind. Don't decide it's now all over. I'm trying to rehabilitate the word investigator. We make the investigators a a preliminary stage to full-fledged membership. But investigator is a wonderful description of the religious life. You're always investigating. How can I find God? And, you know, it requires sort of an open mind, a questing spirit. And uh, out of that, I think, comes um, beautiful results, if we can tolerate it. So that's my aim, is to keep the conversation going, to keep people looking at uh, the possible meanings of all the things we turn over.
0: Yeah, I I think you hit on a beautiful point as you're talking about that. if, If rather than we try to bury the critic in their argument, we simply say, hey, there's other possible conclusions, other ways to look at this information, then all of a sudden, agency's back on the table. And for those people who want to lead with faith, now they have two conclusions they can go to. And 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 with faith being on the table, with both conclusions being reasonable and perhaps valid, it then puts the choice back in their own hands, which I think more times than not can lead one to stay in the church and to make their way through it and figure it out.
2: Yeah. I'm with you 100% on that. I think it's uh, very beautiful. I think, Terrell Givens has stated that case as well as anyone and for me that's that's very that's exactly the goal we should strive for.
0: Yeah, you mentioned Terrell. I know you and Terrell and I think Fiona as well have uh, have been going around at least doing one, maybe there's more on the works, but some firesides for people who are struggling with their faith. And in one question I want to ask, is there are some people who once believed, they encounter this stuff, they determine the church isn't true and they leave? And they think that those who stand and, and continue to say, "Hey, hang in there. There's room for faith. We believe," tend to think that some of us are faking it. Uh, any thoughts from you on on the gospel and how how there really is room for faith, and there's more to it than just faking it and, and going along on, on on something less than?
2: I don't confess. Um, I try to be very tolerant with people, but I'm pretty resentful of that conclusion that anyone who really believes is. Taking it that's very, very presumptuous they say about someone else, and especially when you're talking about people of character and standing and commitment and very responsible of people um, I think it's, it's a kind of a of a second grade defense of your own certainty that you say everyone, if they were honest, would see things exactly the way I do that's the kind of dogmatism that I've been objecting to so um, I just think that human life is much more complicated than some of these people think. They think that by reducing everything to reason and knowledge, they can reach simple, sure conclusions. But, uh, the history of philosophy, the history of religion, the history of science shows that's not true. Things are always up in the air. Things are always having to be reformulated. So to say that someone couldn't in good judgment, looking at all the facts, arrive at the conclusion that the gospel is true, that God is leading us, that he's there and answering our prayers. I think that's um, as I say, I think that's presumptuous
0: right and I agree with that It's very easy, like you say, to think that the rest of the world would respond the same way you do if they had the same information you have. but in reality, even if we give a hundred people in the room the exact same information. People will come up with different conclusions, and it's, and like you say, it's presumptuous to assume that you've got the right answer, and the other 99 people are off base, and somehow need to arrive at where you're at. Yeah, yeah.
2: exactly.
0: The the other thing I wanted to ask, and this kind of ties into one of the questions that I asked earlier, but is there anything that uh, that you and me and, and others in the church who understand the issue of faith crisis, is there anything we can do to stand out as safe people for others to to see and recognize, so that they know there's someone they can come talk to?
2: Well, I think just airing the issues, just as you're doing on this blog, um, is a huge part of it. I was thrilled to walk into a priest priesthood relief setting meeting once where they were talking openly about pornography. How do we deal with pornography? Once you can get the, a big problem out in the open when everybody can talk about it, you're sort of halfway home to dealing with the difficulty. And I think the more we can talk about these problems and recognize those difficulties and uh, sort of talk about the ways we have resolved our own issues, uh, the better it is. Our high priest group in Manhattan is terrific on that. We're all old warriors in the church, been bishops, et cetera. And uh, we we talk about more difficulties than than 99% of the Sunday school classes in the church because we trust each other. We're quite willing to get them out in the open, and that's, I think, is really therapeutic and uh, refreshing.
0: Yeah, it is good when you can talk about things in the open. I, I know, I know. In some respects, we we tend to think that if the problem shows itself, so for instance, if the struggler comes forward and lets us know he's struggling, we'll reach out and try to help him. But in reality, most people who struggle with a faith crisis, at least for the for the long time in the beginning seem to not say much at all. Um, is that the same experience you you have in regards to talking to people? Is it, does it seem like people tend to keep this inside and not really reveal it or talk about it almost until it's too late?
2: Well, yes, I, it's definitely that, that's the way. It, they sit in seventh school class and really squirm. They feel very uncomfortable. And there's sort of two things. One, they don't want to out themselves as uh, not really part of a group. You know, we, one of the reasons we bear testimony is to say I'm one with you. We're all in this together. And if you bear an anti-testimony, you're in effect saying I'm not part of the group. But the other side of it is that they're afraid they'll destroy other people. That if they if people knew what they knew, they would they would crumble. They they couldn't bear up under it. So they are you know, sort of forced into quiet. And eventually, that leaves many, maybe most of them to stop coming to church. They just can't
0: bear it. They feel hypocritical and they feel like they're disruptive, and and so they just uh, bow out entirely. Right, so the problem never shows itself, and some of these people step away from their activity, and we're left to assume, probably assuming other reasons for their leaving, and in reality, we just we never gave them uh, a safe place to, to talk about their doubts and to deal with them.
2: That's an important word these days, safe place. I think it Begins with being a safe place to talking about your personal problems, you know, the struggles you're having with sickness or um, children or those sort of things. And certainly in a youth Sunday school, should, we should do that. It's hard in Sunday school class when it has a, you know another purpose to sort of air all of your problems. I I really don't know how to get around that. It's um, uh, but uh, we we have to devise some some way of getting people into an atmosphere where they can talk. That's one reason that Carol and Fiona and I are giving these um, little f- seminars, just to let people get, uh, air their, their problems.
0: Right. Sometimes just being able to talk about it takes away a lot of the anxiety and the, the worry and concern out just to know they're not alone, just to know other people are thinking about them and helping them to, to deal with this stuff head on. Well, I had uh, I had one listener when I when I mentioned that you were going to be on the program. I had one listener send me the question this question to ask, and they wanted to know what do you think is the right way to handle when you're in a a teaching responsibility in the church. So, say you're given an assignment to teach uh, a priesthood lesson one Sunday, and some things in the manual you don't quite agree with. Uh, what kind of approach do you take when you run into that from time to time?
2: Well, um, I always like to bring problems up. I mean, it sort of gives me a reputation as a troublemaker, and I don't really want to disrupt people. But I think it's a great thing for a group to have to deal with an issue, and you get more discussion and some more strong thinking um, if you bring the, the question out in the open. If you do it in a conoclastic kind of way, trying to sock people or trouble them, it won't work. Uh, people don't want you to to show off that you know more difficult questions than they could possibly answer. But if you say, look, we're brothers and sisters, here's a problem. How do we deal with this? What, what do we tell our children about this if this comes up or our neighbors if they bring up the question? You can't do too much of that, but you can bring something like that up, I think, in, in lessons quite regularly and the group will rally around you. You don't even have to have an answer for it. You, let the group find an answer for it, and I think you'll have a great time in the process
0: that's good advice often and I didn't mean to I guess throw that question at you without any preparation. What I was thinking was sometimes in the manual we'll have lessons on, for instance uh, Thomas Marsh and the milk strippings and sometimes the manuals are very basic and simple and they make they make stories in history out to be much simpler than what it is, and in reality. Things can be a lot more difficult. And I think what you offer is a great point, which is don't, don't duck away from the fact that there's something in the manual that you think is more complicated than what they're saying. Throw the question out there and get a discussion going. And, and like you say, there's ways to approach that that are helpful and there's ways to approach that where you're demeaning from the class and to stay away from the latter.
2: Yeah, I, I would say so. The, the telling of that muck snapping stories, which makes me uncomfortable too, uh, is that in order to turn it into a problem, you have to give a lot of historical background and say this is not likely to be true and here's what the real situation was. That's complicated. So I don't think that's a good example of something that a class can handle because it's a matter of factual knowledge, which they don't have. You need something that has more of a moral or psychological um, dimension to it, which they can cope with better.
0: Excellent. I wanted to ask you a couple of questions in regards to Joseph Smith. Uh, we're talking to Richard Bushman today, author of Rough Stone Rolling, and it's a wonderful book. I've got it on my shelf, uh, Brother Bushman, and I, I really enjoyed reading it. I was aware of all the issues prior to reading the book, but uh, read it uh, and just loved all the detail you gave about Joseph. I, I had another question from a listener who asked what your Feelings are on Fawn Brody's book, No Man Knows My History, as your book is kind of the, um, the your book obviously tells the same story but leads with faith, and, and her book is more with the conclusion that Joseph was a fraud. But from the perspective of her being a writer and having come up with this uh, biography of the prophet Joseph Smith many many years before you tackled your project, any thoughts on how that work has influenced yours?
2: Well, I'll tell you a funny story about that, uh... You know, both books were published by the same publisher, Alfred Knopf, and I told my editor, my, and my book came out 60 years after hers, and I told my editor that uh, this is at last the uh, press's chance to get things straight on Joseph Smith. She thought it was kind of funny, but she also told me that the sales of, of No Man Knows My History jumped after my book came out. I guess it kind of became uh, an issue and people wanted to hear both sides. But I'll say this about the book: uh, it's a book that uh, Mormons uh, have hated and still dislike very much. But uh, it actually is more favorable to Joseph Smith than we sometimes think. My historical colleagues, not, not Mormons, think it's a great book, and it is in this sense. Up to that time, the biographies of Joseph Smith had been caricatures. He was thought of as either demented or a complete charlatan. And they were sort of flat caricatures of of a religious fanatic. They were unlike any real human being. And it's out of that background that von Brodie writes her book. And she turns Joseph Smith into a believable character. It's not from our point of view isn't admirable, but from the point of view of non Mormon's he's he's kind of wonderful. He's raw, he, he may have been a, a fake in some ways but he had immense bravado and he had this amazing capacity for charming people and winning them over and building this this great church. So uh, I I tend to speak uh, rather positively of the book, uh, historiographically speaking, even though I think Bodie had um, a deaf ear. She was tone deaf to religious theological stuff. She was not religious herself, really. And she just couldn 't appreciate it. She wrote you know in a period when religion was scoffed at generally among modern intellectuals uh, so that is a great deficiency in the book, but uh, it' still I think is a, a marvelous achievement
0: what uh, if Joseph Smith were here today, is there a question you 'd like to ask him? Well,
2: my answer uh, always to that is uh, did you enjoy being a prophet and I say that because uh, there are lots of indications he would have liked to have slowed things down. You know, he says shortly after the church is organized, well now brethren, we have the church and we can, all we have to do is go on living it. And then he has, to, and he gets a revelation, he has to establish Zion and build up this priesthood organization. And after you organize, I counsel, he organized the high council, says, now brethren, I've given you all I have to give you. All we have to do is live the church. And then he gets, it went on right down to the end of his life. His own visions pursued him relentlessly. And in some sense, he's a victim of those visions. He just could not stop setting forth things that tried the faith of the saints that went beyond what they were really ready for and required a lot of labor on his part to get them installed in the church. So I know he loved visions. He loved to receive the revelations, and he spoke of that. But on the other hand, he just didn't have a moment to rest, and I just wonder how he felt about his own life. And by the end, how was he just worn out by all
0: he was required to do? Right. Um, do you ever get bored of talking or studying uh, the prophet's life? I mean, after all this research you've done, you've written a book. You, I mean, you've you've spent as many hours as anybody delving into his life. Um, do you get kind of at this point bored of talking about him?
2: Well, not really. Um, uh, I suppose you can get bored with topics, but uh, large people are subject to so many perspectives that it won't be too long before someone else is going to start a biography of Joseph Smith and, and write a, a different account of his life. All um, oh, the big men in our history of, had innumerable biographies written about them, Jefferson and Washington continue to attract biographers. So uh, uh, I keep finding in the, in the Book of Mormon, for example, layer after layer of meaning. It just endlessly un- unfolds itself. So uh, I, I'm quite happy to uh, continue to be involved. Though I do have another life. I'm right now writing a book on 18th century farming. So I, I have a respite from Joseph Smithman from time to
0: time working on other subjects gotcha you, you talk about other people coming after you and writing biographies in the prophet um, your book is is so exceptional I, I feel like anybody would be intimidated trying to take on a project like that knowing that you've set the bar as high as you have and really appreciate your spending the countless hours and putting Joseph's life together in a way that that shares the difficult history with us as latter-day saints but do but does so in a way that that we can walk away still having faith in Him and in the restoration. So I, I want to say thank you for that. I got two more questions I want to ask you, and and so the first one is this: Is there is there a question that nobody has ever asked you that you want to be asked so that you can answer?
2: Well, um, I'm not sure. I invite uh, questions of, of that kind. Um, I um, I would there are questions I'd like to ask of other people and. Um, we've sort of talked about one of them already, and that is, how can you be so sure that the church is not true? That uh, is a question that uh, that perplexes me. I just can't quite get my mind around it, partly because I tend to be more flexible in my own thinking. I can't imagine that, that other point of view. And uh, what I am frequently asked is, uh, how do I feel about Joseph Smith? And I, I do have great admiration for him for his vigor and his resilience and his his resolution. He um, You know, he didn't have many resources to work with: no standing in the society, no wealth, no institutional structure, limited number of friends, and he had to work with very weak reads. Those first people around him were so um, so unsteady, came and went, and yet he had this. Vision of what he wanted to create, and he was just would not yield. He just would not give up, no matter what failures he he met. So um, I have a great, great uh, responsibility, a re- great respect for that, and also his fecundity, is um, just, just endless revelations flow from him. I mean, if you see him as a you know as a, a human. He was his his religious imagination just was bottomless. He came up with so much stuff which continues to be to inspire people. We've got all these young intellectuals in the church who just love to work with Joseph Smith's writings and especially the scriptures, um, and they just find him endlessly revealing and original and so forth. So um, I, I I just somehow want to register how much uh, respect I. I have
0: for Jonathan. I want to. I want to end the podcast on this question, which is a large chunk of my listeners are people who are currently struggling right now with their faith, who are pondering and exploring and delving into these difficult issues and trying to make heads or tails of them. Any counsel from you uh, to them, to these individuals who are who are in the midst of their dark night of the soul?
2: Well. Um, What I would say is um, be intellectually courageous and focused. It's um, once you encounter this stuff, it can be shocking, terrifying, and you just feel frozen and hardly know what to do. And then when you um, begin, as the evidence begins to mount up, you just say, "I better get out of here." You just turn away from it, and from then on, there's a tendency to just read more and more things that confirm your decision. Uh, And There's more evidence that it's all phony. And it requires um, a lot of independence and a certain amount of courage to keep looking at all sides of the issue, to read the apologists as well as as the critics, and to try and think it through for yourself. My number one piece of advice is don't falter. Go right into the heart of the problem. Try to figure out what is it precisely about this that is disruptive? What is it that troubles me most? And state that problem in the most severe form you can. And if you can, state that problem as clearly as you can and then try honestly to to accumulate information that bears on all sides of the problem. that's, That's the best way I think you'll arrive at a resolution. If you just read, read down a list of problems, read 20 things, and all of these are difficulties, um, you, you, you won't get anywhere. You'll just stay stuck where you are. But if you keep looking at things, take them one by one and say, what is it that's really worse about this? Then you'll be much better off. Let me just give one example. Carry on here a little bit longer. That is the book of Abraham. What is what is so horrible about the book of Abraham? People say, well, it's the facts, the fact that the text of the book of Abraham does not conform to what Egyptian scholars say is the contents of those, those, uh, skulls. So you say, so obviously Joseph Smith was wrong. He, he, um, he was pretending he faked the whole thing. But, um, in my opinion, um, What we're really saying is that Joseph Smith didn't know what was on that text. The text itself is quite remarkable. The Book of Abraham, as it's in our scriptures, is is an incredible document and is strangely like other Abrahamic texts from uh, antiquity. So it holds up pretty well. What doesn't hold up is the fact that Joseph Smith thought he had the writings of Abraham and he very well... He probably, probably didn't have writings of his him. So the question is not the facts about, was he right or wrong, but was he himself misled? And then it becomes a theological question. Would God allow a prophet to whom he wishes to give a revelation to misunderstand what the scrolls were that he had in his hand? And some people would say it's impossible and God would deceive his prophet. But others would say, the aims of the Lord were to get his revelation out, and um, the fact that Joseph Smith didn't understand what he had um, is not this particularly disruptive. Lots of prophets don't really understand. Probably lots of us don't understand lots of things about our lives. So that's why I'd say if you go right into the heart of the problem, I think in many cases it gets down to a theological or a moral issue uh, rather than a factual one. And once you've stated that problem, would God let His prophet misunderstand something? Um, then I think you've got to the heart of the matter.
0: I think that's that's beautiful. When you, as you point out, it's when, especially when you talk about the Book of Abraham. What Joseph produced is not the problem; it's the method. And then the method obviously can be can be looked at in different ways. But when you go to what the actual production was of that method, that production holds up. And, uh, it appears to be an inspired work, appears to match up with, like you, like you state, other works that, uh, uh, revolve around Abraham from antiquity. So, I think you make a beautiful point there. I, I appreciate so much you being on. The, the, uh, I'm having Terrell Givens on in a few weeks as well, and, and I split this up in two ways. I, I wanted you to, to speak to us in ways that we can be better supportive of the person struggling. I think you did a beautiful job of that. Um, I just want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. I appreciate all the work you do, and I appreciate all the time you spend helping those who struggle in their faith.
2: Well, I'm very pleased to get to know you, Bill, and learn a little bit about uh, what you're doing. I think it's uh, voices like yours and, and um, podcasts like this that are eventually going to make it possible for
0: people to deal confidently with all these problems that keep coming up. Thank you, and have a great day, Brother Bushman.
1: Praise the mount I'm fixed upon it Mount of thy Redeeming love Here I raise My Ebenezer Here by thy Great help I've come And I hope That day when freed from sinning I shall see thy lovely face Clothed then in blood-washed linen How I'll sing thy sovereign grace Come, my Lord, no longer tarry Take my ransom Send thine angels now to carry me to realms of endless day. Oh, to grace how great a debtor, daily I am constrained to be. Let Thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to Thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it.